This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Ever since the forested valleys, lush meadows, and forbidding swamps of New Jersey has been a travel corridor between Boston and Philadelphia, there have been reports of a strange beast terrorizing the countryside. The descriptions vary somewhat in the beast's size and ferocity, but in most ways the reports are strikingly similar. A long horse-like face, horns, leathery wings, a forked tail, and cloven hooves. In colonial times, this creature was known as the 13th Child, or the Devil of Leeds Point. But today, this monster of the woods, known in folklore and urban myth, goes by a different name. The Jersey Devil. From Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan, and this is The Devil Within. You can run off for a long time, run for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gonna cut you down. This is episode five, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. So what would be the Mount Rushmore of mythical creatures? Bigfoot, obviously, the Loch Ness Monster, the Abominable Snowman, and I guess Chupacabra? We're not a bad list. There's a good chance that most people would combine Bigfoot and the Abominable Snowman, so let's do that. What would occupy that last slot? The Jersey Devil, of course, the subject of countless excursions into the Pine Barrens in South Jersey, through the Delaware Valley in North Jersey, and everywhere in between, in search of this elusive prey. Stories of breathless encounters with the beast have been documented by law enforcement in every county in the state. There are reams of police files complete with photographic evidence of cloven footprints, mutilated livestock, and banshee-like screams in the darkness. The creature is also responsible for two bona fide public panics, one in 1763, another in 1909. In both cases, the risk was considered serious enough that people were instructed to stay indoors while the local military, as if on full-fledged training maneuvers, combed the wilderness for any sign of the winged menace. The origin stories of this New Jersey legend are almost as varied as the sightings themselves, but the one most generally accepted has to do with a local politician, printer, and secret Christian occultist named Daniel Leeds. Mr. Leeds bore the unfortunate burden of having his first two wives die shortly after marriage, neither producing a child. His third wife, however, would prove to be up to the task of providing the large family that Leeds always dreamed of. A total of 12 healthy children over 20 years blessed the family with untold happiness. But the 13th would be a different story entirely. The story goes that as soon as Mother Leeds went into labor, with this, her 13th child, she immediately knew that something was terribly wrong. According to the official record, Mrs. Leeds was in incredible pain, far more than even natural childbirth visited upon the mother. And more than that, she was terrified. Just as the baby was about to enter the world, through her pain and fear, she proclaimed, 
Oh, let this one be a devil. To the utter shock of everyone in the room, a devil is exactly what entered, screaming. This spawn of Satan then spread its leathery wings, killed everyone in the room, and escaped up the chimney and out into the woods beyond. This is Dr. Brian Regal, Associate Professor of the History of Science at Kane University in New Jersey, and author of the book, The Secret History of the Jersey Devil. Daniel Leeds is this very important, kind of lost character, not just in New Jersey history, but in in American history, in colonial history. Uh, We said that had he been born, say, a generation later, uh, and if he did the same things then that he did when he was alive, we would be talking about him as one of the founding fathers. Uh, He's a really interesting guy, uh, self-taught scholar, uh, a Quaker who basically bucks the system and decides he wants to bring the ideas of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution to colonial America. And he runs into lots of resistance for it. And he writes a couple of things. He creates an almanac, all of which get attacked by his fellow Quakers. Uh, He's not just the first author in New Jersey. He's the first censored author in New Jersey. Uh, His first book, The Temple of Wisdom, uh, is only known from one copy, which is in the Philadelphia, I'm sorry, the Pennsylvania Historical Society in Philadelphia, uh, because all the other copies were burned. Uh, I had to go all the way to London to find an actual genuine original copy of his first almanac because all of those were burned uh, by his his sort of opponents. And so what happens is they thought he was getting too much into what they considered the occult. And the funny thing is, he's a devout Christian. He's not a he's not a, 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 a cultist in that sort of sense we think of in the 21st century as a you know a kind of a guy with a pointy hat and a long cloak uh, doing devil worship. Uh, he's a Christian occultist who believes that astrology and alchemy and similar sort of disciplines can get you a better understanding of the nature of God. So that's why he's doing it. And his neighbors weren't quite sophisticated enough to kind of get that. And so they, they saw it in very negative terms. And so they oppose him. And he reaches a point where he just kind of gives up on that. And he says, you know, if they're not going to let me spread, uh, you know, the scientific revolution, I'm going to leave the Quaker faith and I'm going to spend the rest of my life attacking them in any way I can. And so he starts producing these books, these sort of anti-Quaker books. Uh, and he, he, he relaunches the Leeds Almanac, which will become the most popular one in the region uh, until poor Richard comes along, doing this kind of work to uh, partly to enlighten people, but also because he's reached a point where he just said, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm just going to get these, these Quakers screwed me over and I'm going to get them back. Well, there is no Mother Leeds, obviously. That is a, that is a kind of apocryphal tale which doesn't really get attached to the story until almost the end of the 19th century. Um, The Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin gets involved because Daniel Leeds' son, he's got a whole, he he produces tons of kids. Uh, The next to youngest uh, child is Titan Leeds. And Titan is the only one who really kind of follows in his father's footsteps. And then along comes Ben Franklin, who's kind of, 
trying to position himself as an important person and get his printing uh, business going. And he decides to start publishing an almanac, but he's got to sort of contend with his great rival, which is the Leeds Almanac. So Ben Franklin starts spreading these stories about how uh, Titan Leeds is involved in the occult, and he's an astrologer, and he's all these sort of things. And he also predicts Titan Leeds' death. And then obviously Titan Leeds doesn't die, uh, because Franklin's doing all this very tongue-in-cheek. He's just trying to, uh, you know, sort of drum up readership uh, in a way that we would recognize today. You know, how do how do TV shows and, and news shows get people to watch? You've got to come up with something outrageous. Uh, and so that's what he does. And Titan Leeds tries to fight back, and he says that Franklin is a fool and a liar, but that only kind of plays into Franklin's hand. Franklin says that Titan Leeds will die in 1738, but he uh, actually, I'm sorry, he says he'll die in 1735, he dies in 1738, uh, and that's where that date that we often get for the birth of the Jersey Devil comes from. Uh, it's, it's a kind of um, a boulderization of Titan Leeds' actual death year. And so once that happens, um, you know, the, the, the Leeds family name kind of goes into decline. And this is about when we're first starting to get those, those kind of first little stirrings of people talking about independence uh, from Great Britain. And eventually you'll get something called the Leeds Devil, which isn't a monster at all. It's a kind of a political uh, insult. Uh, you know, the way we today, if you want to insult someone politically, you might say, oh, they're a socialist or they're a communist. Uh, you know, years years ago, they'd say, oh, she's a witch. Uh, and so to call someone the Leeds devil was kind of implying that you weren't a real American, you weren't loyal, uh, you sided with the empire, that kind of thing. And by, oh, say, the period of the early republic, the early 19th century, uh, the Leeds Devil legend and the story of Daniel and Titan Leeds have basically gone extinct. Uh, no one's really talking about it anymore. Um, and you only start to get this kind of monster attachment to it around the time of the Civil War, and then only just sort of barely. What happens is by the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, people think this uh, Jersey Devil story goes all the way back to the colonial era. It doesn't. It's an early 20th century invention, and some story. Yeah, some some stories start to spread around Southern Jersey and Philadelphia, Camden, Trenton, about weird footprints in the snow. Should sound very familiar. And so, someone, a couple of different people. Uh, sort of old-timers say, well, you know, when uh, when I was a little kid, my grandpappy talked about something called the Leeds Devil. Maybe it was the Leeds Devil. And when that happens, the guys at a dime museum in Philadelphia, the 9th and Arch Street Dime Museum, uh, which was a very popular place at the time, they sort of heard this and thought that they had hit a gold mine because now they're going to start cranking out these fake stories about a monster running around in the woods, uh, and they wind up... Uh, taking a poor kangaroo uh, that they got from Albany, New York, and they painted it green and attached little wings to it and put it on display in the Dime Museum. And one of the guys who's running this whole thing thinks that Leeds Devil doesn't quite sing. 
And so he comes up with the idea of Jersey Devil, and that just kind of takes off, and everybody wants to see it. And the Dime Museum makes lots of money, and big crowds show up, and, and you get uh, newspaper articles all over the place. And then with all such things, uh, people begin to realize that uh, that's just a kangaroo painted green. Uh, and so the Dime Museum you know, washes this poor animal off and takes the wings off and ships it back to, back to, back to Albany. And says, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a, was a, you know, it was a hoax. That people say, well, why did you hoax that? And you're like, uh, hello. This is a dime museum. That's what we do for a living. We hoax things. We make up stuff. Uh, and so they thought it was over, you know, because they they were carnival hucksters who came up with sort of a little bit of an idea to get people to come in, and it worked. And now it's over. Uh, but what happens is the legend takes on a life of its own. And people start saying that they saw it and, you know, it was running around the woods and it left tracks and it stole my lawnmower and I saw it in the trees out in the woods and, you know, and here we are. I'm a proud cat person. I wasn't always. I grew up with dogs. Now I live in a house with three cats. Two of them are brothers. We have an elderly cat. My kids love them. Anybody who's a, a, a pet person understands when I say they're part of the family. But having three cats in the house, I got to tell you, those litter boxes, they're, uh, they're no joke. The cleaning, the trying to cover up the smell, sifting the litter. That's why I couldn't be happier that I switched to pretty litter. It's cat litter reinvented. It's not like the litter that you're used to where it clumps and, and then you have some left and it all still kind of smells a little bit. Pretty litter uses super light crystals that trap odor and release moisture. And the end result is a low-maintenance litter situation that doesn't smell. So it's lightweight, it doesn't smell, and it's virtually dust-free. But here's the best thing. Here is why Pretty Litter is a cat lover's best friend. It's a health indicator. The crystals can detect a potential underlying health issue in your cat and lets you know by turning a different color when your cat uses it. Get the world's smartest cat litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use the promo code WITHIN for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code WITHIN for 20% off. prettylitter.com, promo code WITHIN. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If there are areas of your life where you're struggling with your own happiness, with your personal relationships, with your work relationships, uh, maybe with your spouse or with your parents or with your children, or especially if you're struggling with your relationship with yourself. If you are on the fence about taking that next step towards a better life, let me invite you to hop off the fence and get in touch with the folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And remember, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online. And you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you'll never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. And BetterHelp is committed to making great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free of charge to change counselors if needed. The bottom line is BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash devil within. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. 
In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for the Devil Within listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash devilwithin. Another reason it's necessary to dismiss the lead's origin story is that there were sightings of a similar beast long, long before Mother Leeds was even in the colonies. Native Americans, the original inhabitants of the Americas, were, by definition, pagans. They had gods for everything. They also had superstitions for days and a deep and abiding belief in ghosts and demons. Now, within any tribe, the most important member wasn't the chief or the best hunter or the bravest fighter. The most celebrated and revered member of any tribe was the medicine man, or if you prefer, the shaman. These sacred men occupied the most important place in the hierarchy of the community. They dealt with matters of the spirit and of the spirit world. They were patched in, connected to another dimension. Sometimes with the help of hallucinogenic plants, but often through a series of rituals performed at a sacred site and always at a specific time. It didn't always play out the way you might think. Some of these shamans, according to folklore, were searching for something more, something powerful that would elevate them even higher among their tribe. And when they succeeded, a new legend would be born. There are many tales of mythical beasts in the pantheon of Native American folklore. The Algonquin water panther, the flying vampire heads of the Iroquois nation, the ancient Mayan death bat, but what we'll be focusing on is the Yi Nadloshi'i, better known as the Navajo Skinwalker. Although this creature is of Navajo origin and the first reported sightings were in the western Navajo territory, tales of the Skinwalker extend from Central America up the eastern seaboard into Canada and beyond. Some historians describe the creature as something akin to a traditional werewolf, in that it's something that starts out as a human and transforms into an animal hybrid. At a certain time of year, the tribe's shaman would venture to the sacred site, perform a secret ritual, and then return to the tribe. But not long after his return, the sightings would start. A ferocious beast stalking children and livestock just beyond the tree line. And then the screams in the night, and more sightings of the elusive monster, the skinwalker. And finally, the disappearances people would just go missing and never be heard from again. The rest of the tribe knew it was the demon from the spirit world that had taken control of the power-hungry shaman and consumed him entirely. They also knew that the reign of this evil being would not last long, it never did, and they knew it would be many, many moons before another generation of the tribe faced such a crisis. For it took not only a shaman with a deep connection to the spirit world, but also one who took the time to study the ancient ways and to seek out the answers to unlocking the mysteries of the great medicine men who came before him. It also required something of a dark side, a willingness to indulge the baser instincts of man and the ability to summon courage in the face of terror. It wasn't often that a man like that rose to prominence within a tribe. Someone with that level of confidence, moral ambiguity, and penchant for mischief was usually relegated to the status of soldier or hunter. Rarely were they considered for any type of leadership role. 
and yet tales of the skinwalker persist. Curiously, those stories died out right around the time Mother Leeds was cursing the imminent arrival of her 13th child. Why would that be? A case could be made that the area, now being inhabited mostly by white Europeans, simply created a new name for the same beast, as well as a new origin story to help explain the unexplainable. In fact, there are students of folklore in the Americas that include Chupacabra as the same creature as the Skinwalker and the Jersey Devil, albeit understood culturally quite differently. In Jefferson Township, the local version of the myth was the half-man, half-deer creature that roamed the woods of Sparta Mountain Road, a rarely traveled, poorly maintained, meandering mountain pass that just happens to be a stone's throw from the high school. If you lived on the Milton side, you knew about this monster, just like you knew about the ghosts of Clinton Road and the wrangling circus animals that were reported to have escaped and been left to roam and breed freely in the dense forests of the Berkshire Valley. But no one ever really believed any of it was true. At least they didn't talk about it publicly. There have been television shows, magazine articles, even entire books dedicated to the legend of the Jersey Devil. There is even a society dedicated to tracking and hopefully capturing one of the beasts in the interests of science. But so far, all we have are frightful encounters and collections of strange, random bits of so-called evidence. However, to be fair, let's look at what we do know about the stories throughout the centuries. Are there any similarities, any consistent elements that, despite the fantastic nature of the claims, should be considered? The answer is yes. First, the description of the creature has been remarkably consistent throughout the years. The major departure from this would be the Navajo skinwalker, which is generally described as a werewolf rather than a winged demon. But maybe that can be reconciled. If the first sighting of a skinwalker was described as a wolf-like creature, that would be the version of the beast that would endure, with subsequent encounters adapted to fit the existing narrative, regardless of obvious variations or more accurate descriptions. People want to be believed. Also, the legend of the Skinwalker existed long before the introduction into the Americas of any type of biblical demon to base the description of a monster on. It would be like expecting the Native Americans to explain their ancient sport of lacrosse as being similar to basketball, before they even knew basketball existed. So there is a distinct possibility that we're talking about the same creature. The next similarity that can't be ignored is one that has remained unexplored for centuries. Although much of what has been discussed has been admittedly speculation, something that can be accepted as fact with regard to the Jersey Devil deals with the time of year that the sightings and encounters are reported. Every single one occurs in early summer or early winter. There are no reports of an autumnal or springtime encounter with the Jersey Devil. None. And to get even more specific, nearly all reports occur within two weeks of either the summer or winter solstice, and the majority of those are in the winter. So again, we arrive in the mysterious world of the pagans. Let's pause for a moment to reconsider the timeline of Tommy Sullivan's terrible descent in broad strokes. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, murder. Late fall into early winter, with the solstice just about in the middle. 
A solstice is an astronomical measurement, down to the second. It marks either the sun's most northerly or southerly distance away from the equator, thus generating either the longest or shortest days of the year, respectively. The date varies somewhat, not by much, and it heralds the beginning of summer or the beginning of winter. For ancient agricultural peoples, the winter solstice marked the holiest day on the pagan calendar. Yes, winter had arrived, but the end was in sight. The days were getting longer. The promise of summer had been delivered. In Roman times, it was on the winter solstice that the feast of Saturnalia began, with days of celebrations, debauchery, and gift-giving. When Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, he decreed that his new religion would adopt some, not all, of these long-held traditions. But in essence, the winter solstice is the shortest day on the calendar, or, if you prefer, the longest night. We can refer to Robert Frost, that great sage of the woods, who referenced the solstice in his poem Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. Between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. It is interesting, if a bit of a departure, to examine that poem for a moment. At first read, one can enjoy the pastoral simplicity of a man immersed in the beauty of nature. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. But now consider that the narrator is a man who has just committed a horrible crime and has hidden evidence of that crime, a dead body, say, in the nearby woods. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Now the text is infused with the nervous reassurances of a guilty man trying to keep his wits about him. The darkest evening of the year, that line now takes on additional weight and subtext. In the poem's final stanza, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. It portends an enveloping sadness that may well last into eternity, symbolized by the beautiful yet haunting forest that hides a deadly secret. This is an example of how the winter solstice, though traditionally a time of celebration, has always carried with it an undertone of darkness and isolation, showcasing perhaps those last rotted tendrils of death as they struggle to maintain their grip upon the landscape until the inevitable rise of spring. But still, it's a celebration. The exact time of the solstice in 1987 was Tuesday, December 22nd, at 10.45 p.m., right around the time young Tommy Sullivan was making his second mysterious trip to the woods of Clinton Road. What did he see there? More importantly, What did he do there? We're all familiar with the cliché about the devil convincing the world he doesn't exist. But maybe that's not the real story. Something closer to the truth may be that the devil doesn't have a say in it. That it's certain people at certain times that hold the power over the exposure of some ancient evil and the decision of whether or not to betray the secret that keeps its existence hidden. A powerful man like Richard Cross, who had the means to travel the world in search of long-forgotten truths, rites, 
and devious histories of times gone by, a man who could seek out specific locations connected to folklore, buy the land, and build a castle specifically to attend to rituals designed to explore the promises of the occult. Perhaps he purchased the land in North Jersey not to impress his wife and get away from the city, but to serve a purpose far more complicated and dangerous. Why else would such an otherwise ordinary place, beautiful to be sure, but no less so than many, many others for hundreds of miles to the north, south, and west, why else would this section of land, this small village, attract a man like Cross, if not for something that could possibly satisfy a foreboding curiosity, a desire for answers that lurk in the darkness? It seems that the death of Richard Cross closed the book on practices of the occult in Jefferson and the surrounding area. The widow, Mrs. Cross, shuddered Barefoot and returned to the city. Several of her children remained local to the area, two of her daughters being some of the loudest early voices in the women's suffrage movement. But mostly the Cross name faded into history, and rarely studied history at that. But, if you remember, one of the last things Mrs. Cross did before fleeing northern New Jersey was to empty out the castle and destroy much of the strange artifacts her husband had collected over the course of his life. She was covering her tracks, not to protect her husband's name in death, but to protect her own in life. One can only imagine the artifacts that were destroyed, the manuscripts burned, the art, the things that defined a man and his time here on Earth. Except his books. Many of his books were spared and donated to local collections, including some of the more prominent residents of the growing village of Milton. Benjamin Chamberlain of Connecticut was the first of his namesake to settle in northwestern New Jersey. He landed in a beautiful wooded glen near the township of Sparta in Sussex County. Just over Sparta Mountain in Morris County lay the Berkshire Valley and the small village of Petersburg, which would later, upon the founding of Jefferson Township, be renamed Milton. The Chamberlain bloodline flourished, farming, Distilleries, ironworks, and inevitably, politics cemented the family name from their arrival in the valley until this very day. The Chamberlain descendants that impact our story came about in the early and mid 19th century. A man named Amos and his son George. Amos, like all Chamberlains in the Berkshire Valley, did very well for himself and decided that he would build a nice little house, nothing too grand or attention seeking for his son George as a wedding gift. So in 1874, he picked out a nice piece of land on Dover Milton Road and built the handsome farmhouse on a small hill with a rushing creek just a few yards behind it. George and his wife moved in, started a family, and lived there happily for more than 20 years. The house stayed in the Chamberlain name, rented to various tenants until the 1960s, when the town assumed ownership and it became the Riker Public Library. Violet Riker came to Jefferson during the Depression and spearheaded the establishment of a free lending library in the community through the WPA, that sweeping public works program that was the crowning achievement of the Roosevelt administration. Her library started in her own living room with a meager budget and small contribution of interesting books from a local widow who had moved away years prior. 
the widow's collection having been in storage and overseen by one of her daughters. As the library grew, it moved to a few different locations until a permanent home was found in the small farmhouse that had passed out of the storied Chamberlain name and was available to fulfill the dreams of Violet Riker. By 1980, the library and the town itself had grown to the point that a proper library was necessary, complete with a building designed and constructed specifically for that purpose. Today, the Jefferson Township Public Library stands proudly in a nice patch of woods on a shared piece of land with the police station and municipal building, and most of Violet Riker's original collection sits in boxes and crates tucked away in the basement. And the original structure, the tidy little farmhouse, built by a proud father for his newly married son, still stands, having received a new commission as the Jefferson Township Museum. And so, for more than 60 years, the books donated by the widow Mrs. Cross sat in one dusty corner or another. Books that represented the life's journey and spiritual obsessions of her late husband. Books that documented, perhaps, why that land, that specific piece of land, was so important. Books that explained the intricate and macabre rituals of the earliest pagan worshippers. Books of spells and incantations. Books that had been hiding in plain sight for generations, awaiting the curious and impressionable mind of a young boy who simply didn't understand the Pandora's box that he was about to open. Somewhat ironically, the profound evil that was about to befall Jefferson Township might well have been avoided had it not been for the notorious mafia hitman, Richard Kuklinski, known in pop culture as the Iceman. Coming up on the next episode of The Devil Within. It only took around 20 minutes to get to the junction of Route 23, and at least some civilization in the form of a stoplight and a gas station. No traffic, no signs of life as they crossed the highway and rode the hundred or so yards to the beginning of Clinton Road. If ever there was a time when Tommy Sullivan could have changed his fortunes by making a different decision, it was now. He would be afforded more chances to turn back at crucial times in this story, but perhaps none so stark and obvious as this one. If only he could have surrendered to his immature fears of the dark, his fears of the unknown and the unseen, but buoyed, perhaps, by the steady companionship of Lance. All of the decisions he might have made if he were alone were jettisoned for the thrill of adventure. Go tell The Devil Within is a Cavalry Audio production, written and directed by Brandon Morgan. Original score by Monkey Mind Music Group. Original music by Bruce Whitkin. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.